Attention everyone, the unpleasant truths you're about to hear are not a mistake. The realest show on the planet. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect management or its sponsors. This is Willie D Live with your host, Willie D. Welcome to the show. Today's good news moment is brought to you by Good Spot. And check this out. Before we go into this, man, we'd like to welcome a special guest into the house. This guy goes by the name of Maz Jabroni. But uh, Jabroni, I don't know why I said Jabroni. I know, I know how to say it. It's the wrestler thing, I, man. I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I think it's the boxing. Too many blows to the head. <laughs> so we're going to go in. We're going to go in in a minute with Maz. But before we do, we like to get into a good, good spy story, as we always like to start the show off with. Today's Good Spy News moment is brought to you by Good Spy and comes out of Chicago, Illinois, where CNBC's the prophet Marcus Lemonis sent a lifelong Cubs fan to the World Series. 97-year-old World War II veteran Jim Schlegel had been waiting 71 years to see his team make it back to the World Series. But unlike most, he was actually at Chicago's Wrigley Field to experience it the last time around in 1945. With overwhelming demand for the chance to see the Chicago Cubs win their first World Series in over a century, sending ticket prices as high as $21,000 on the secondary market, according to ticket aggregator SeatGreet, Shalego had all but given up on the idea he'd be able to go. To help, his granddaughter set up a GoFundMe page with the goal of raising $10,000 for two tickets to the game and hope for the best. The popularity of the GoFund page spread virally on social media, and Marcus, Lamona, Lamon, Marcus Lamonis caught word of it. He decided to reach out and get in touch with the family to offer them two front row tickets to Game 3 at Wrigley Field, and they gladly accepted. Donning a Cubs hat, Schlegel took to Twitter to thank Lamonis for giving him an experience of a lifetime. To top it off, the Cubs won the World Series, making Jim Shalego the happiest man alive. For more good news, as well as daily motivational and empowering content, download the Good Spy app today on Google Play or iTunes. Ladies and gentlemen, Mars, Mars, Mars Gibrani is in the house. What's up, homie? How you doing, man? Hey, man. Hey, man. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having me. I'm happy man. the timing worked out. My man, my man, my man. I've been looking forward to to to, to interviewing you, man, since I did the show. You know, last time you were here, yeah. I was like, I was like, man, got to get you on the show. I'm starting the podcast. Got to get you on the show. I'm in, man. Man, you 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 got this 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 unique thing going about yourself, man. Where you're one of the few uh, Iranian-American comics and actors. Yeah. And so you go through a whole lot of shit in Hollywood, I'm assuming. Yes, sir. You know? Now, now I've seen you act a number of times, and I know one of the things that I see that irks you, really, yeah. it don't irk you, it pisses you off. Yeah. They're always trying to typecast you yeah. as the dude to blow something up. Oh, yeah. What's up with that? Well, you know, I, I wrote a book about it. I, I call it, the book's called I'm Not a Terrorist, but I've played one on TV. Right. Uh, because what happens is, Willie, is like, first of all, I, you know, I grew up in Northern California. Right. And uh, growing up, I did plays. I was into, I, I, I love doing plays. And right. so in those plays, I got to play, 
I played uh, Little Abner in one of the plays, who's like this country, you know, kid, you know, with a southern drawl. I got to, you know, I played in that. I, I, in high school, I got to play Batman. Right. I got to play all these cool roles. Right. And I thought, oh, wow, I get to go to Hollywood and I get to be, I'll get to be Batman. I'll but get to really be. Really flex. Yeah, I get, I get all this stuff. And you show up in Hollywood and when they find out that you're of Middle Eastern descent, the types of auditions you start going out on, they tend to be terrorist parts. Right. And so early on in my career, I started having some of those auditions. And at the same time, look, there were some other auditions that come about that were like, you know, security guard or whatever it is, like, you know, lawyer. But, but, most, but there was a lot of terrorist parts. And, you, and what, you, what I came to realize quickly was that the people writing those movies don't, they tend to come from another background. They tend to right. have like, you know, you have like, you know, older white dudes writing these scripts. They tend to be white males. Come white on, males, exactly. Is, yeah. Man, yeah. So it's like, so, yeah. so what do they know when they're writing a movie? They know what they've seen in the news. And what they've seen in the right. news about Middle Easterners is that we're terrorists. Right. So not, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but a high percentage of the time you end up with these types of parts. There's actually a, a gentleman by the name of, of Jack Shaheen. Uh, he's a professor, and he wrote a book called Real Bad Arabs, R-E-E-L, Bad Arabs. He studies... Uh, Arabs, Iranians, Muslims in movies no, over right. like several thousand movies. And he shows how there's, there's so many negative depictions and, uh, of, of Middle Eastern people. And then he also argues that once you depict those people in that way, then when you want to go to war with that country or that part of the world, it becomes that much easier to sell the war because you go, look, they're animals. Right. Let's go attack them. So right. people don't break it down like that. People don't think about that. But that is the truth. It, it dehumanizes this whole culture, right? So I started, I did... This sounds so, sounds so much like my story. It is, man. It sounds so much like the black experience. It is. Where, where they go out and they just demonize black people and they show black people in a negative light so much that it's easier when they attack black people for people to accept it. Absolutely. Absolutely. They say, it's, yeah, you know, they're animals, you know, they need to be treated this way. They need to be leaned on. Absolutely. And the fact is, like, I learned, uh, so, I, so early in my career, you know, I'm an actor, I'm just taking whatever I get. So I ended up doing a couple of parts where they were terrorist parts. And it was, it was kind of silly, to be honest with you. Like, one of them was a Chuck Norris movie of the week. It was called The President's Man, A Line in the Sand. And I was playing this Afghan terrorist who was going to blow up a building in Chicago. And I'm so dumb that I, I convinced myself that through my acting, I'm going to show why this guy's doing what he's doing. Because as an actor, when you get a part, you're supposed to write the biography of the character before the movie started. What, 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 was, what was his background? Right. So I wrote the biography. I had this thing in my head. And I was like, I'm going I'm to do this real. I'm going to do it right. So I went down to the wardrobe fitting. It was in Dallas, actually. Went down to the wardrobe fitting. And they go, here's your shirt. Here's your pants. Here's your turban. And I go, uh, I go, uh, wait a minute, I go, I'm trying to get this right. I go, Afghans in America don't wear turbans. Right. I, go, I go, Indian Sikhs wear turbans. Right. Afghans don't. And the lady was like, well, um, the producers want you to wear a turban. And I said, well, you tell the producers I've done my research and I shouldn't be wearing a turban. So it was this thing where they're going back and forth and she was cool enough and she comes back the next day and I go to my, I go to my trailer and there's, there's a shirt, there's pants and there's what looks like a scarf. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll wear a scarf. And she was like, no, that's the turban. You just got to wrap it back up. And I was like, what? And she goes, I talked to the producers, and they want the turban. So it became this thing right. of the turban. And then I came to realize later that, um, that Chuck Norris's brother, Aaron Norris, was the exec producer. Uh, and his son, Eric Norris, was the director. 
And Eric obviously is a younger dude. I talked to Eric. I go, Eric, I shouldn't be wearing the turban. And he's like, you know what? I didn't want the turban either. But my uncle, who's the exec producer, wants the turban. And I realized that the uncle's coming from an older school mentality. Right. And the okay. uncle's thinking, our fans, when they watch this movie, uh, if this guy's got a turban on, they can recognize the bad guy, like, you know, right away. Right. So it was just, it was just some stupid stuff. And, and I felt bad doing it. And, and it was kind of like what you just said. I felt like what it would have probably felt for, like, uh, like a black actor who sold out and took a part. Right. You know? And speaking of that, you know, how much beef do you get from your people when you play these type of roles? Well, at that time, it was, it was early in my career, so nobody from my community really knew who I was. Uh, right. And they didn't seem to care as much. I mean, I, I, I think I took, it a, I took it a step further. Like, I, being the person that's in it, I, I made it political because I didn't have anybody from my community necessarily caring because our community has come like the past 40 years. Iranians came after the Iranian Revolution in 79. So we've only been here about 40 years. So when that first generation comes, they, they want their kids to be lawyers and doctors, and they don't even consider a career in the arts. And so... That leads me to my, one of my next questions, yeah. is that how did your parents accept this, come to accept you being an actor and not... A doctor or yeah. a lawyer or something. Yeah, well, you know, again, a lot of immigrants that come to this country, I think the parents consider themselves, they go, look, we struggled to get you here. Yeah. So you better not mess around. You better get right. into that. You better get become a lawyer, doctor, engineer, right. that's it. Right. And that's not just Iranians. It's a lot of Arabs. It's a lot of Indians. It's a lot of Pakistanis. A lot of people from that part of the world. Because I think ultimately what it is, your parents want, want what's best for you. Right. And they don't necessarily, from those traditional cultures, what's best for you is not what... The, the American mentality of what's best for you is, son, what do you want to do? What do you love? Whatever you love, you should do. That's what's best for you. Right. The Middle Eastern <laughs> mentality of what's best for you is, you better not embarrass us. Right. You're going to be a doctor or, you know, uh, you know, I will kill you myself. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's that kind of yeah. thing. So they wanted that. And so what happened was, um, I, I said, I started doing plays in high school and I was good at it. And, and teachers would come up to my parents and be like, he could do this professionally. And my parents would be like, oh, okay. And then in the car, my dad would be like, that bitch is crazy. You know, like, don't right. listen to her. So <laughs> it was like, it was on and on and on. And I actually went to undergrad. I studied political science because I thought I was going to be a professor. My parents had convinced me to be, I'm sorry, I was going to be a lawyer. My parents had convinced me to be a lawyer. So uh, I studied poli sci thinking I'll go be a lawyer. Then I decided I was going to be a professor. And then it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s when... I realized you live once and you got to do what you love doing. Right. And that was one of my dreams. So I, I decided to get back into acting classes. I started taking it. And at first my mom was freaking out. I swear to God, my mom was like, uh, she's like, listen, you didn't become a lawyer. You didn't become a professor. At least become a mechanic. And I go, what? I go, <laughs> I go, what? I go, where did mechanic come in? I swear to God. And she comes, because we come from a revolution where her life was flipped upside down. Right. So in her mind, she thought that if a revolution happens in America, you can be a mechanic anywhere in the world. But you know what? I know some mechanics who are millionaires. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing yeah. wrong with being a mechanic, but it was just the idea of, and she actually said something that made sense. She goes, listen, people need mechanics. Nobody needs an actor. And right. I was like, you know what? That's some wise words right there. Nobody <laughs> wow, needs an actor. When was yeah. the last time someone was like, I need an actor because <laughs> right. I can't get out of the house. I need an actor. Everyone's saying, I need a mechanic. My car broke down. Right, right. So what, what, practically speaking, her advice is right. And it's not, a, it's not a dig to mechanics. It's right. more about the idea of 
they didn't understand the do what you love doing. They understood the do something that you can make money, get a trade that you can make money in. Mm -hmm. So they were hesitant, but now that they've seen my success and more importantly, the fact that they've seen my happiness, they came around. And like my mom's like, you know, my mom now comes to the house and she'd be like, you know, the neighbors would like some t-shirts. You know, I got t-shirts and DVD. Give me a couple of DVDs and some t-shirts for the neighbors. And I'm like, mom, this costs money. She's like, well, I'm your mother, so just give it. You know, so I'm like, right. oh, here you go, you know. But, um, um, but that's it. They came around. And I always tell people that. I go, if you pursue your dream, your parents might push you, push back at first. But if they see that you're serious about it and that you're passionate about mm -hmm. it, they'll come around. You're their kid. You know, they right. love you. They want your success. And once they see that you're happy, that's so important. You know, right. we were just talking about that with my with my friend Aaron. Uh, he's a fellow comedian. People, he's here with me. But we were just talking about that right now about what percentage of people actually find what they love do what they love to do and actually do it. It's not a high percentage yeah. of people. But the thing is, though, man, you spend so much of your time doing what it is that you do to earn a living that you may as well try to find something that you really, really enjoy doing. And I tell my kids the same thing. And, I, and both of them, they're on the right track to do what they want to do in life. But I, I, it's hard for me to just phantom just grinding day in, day out and spending all of these hours doing something that I, that I hate doing and when it takes up so much of my time, takes so much of, takes away so much of my life. Absolutely. Listen, it doesn't, it's no longer work when you love doing it. I mean, it is work, but right. it's not work. And that, like, before I, before I got into this, I, I'd gotten a day job at an advertising agency. Mm -hmm. And that was just kind of a transition to work in advertising. I thought maybe I'd work in advertising and then be able to do plays on the side. And even that, it was a pretty relaxed office but, but I had to get up every day at whatever it was, 9 o'clock, get in the car, drive to work, be there till 5 or 6, drive home. And I just remember a few times, 9 in the morning, driving to work. I would get to work. I didn't even re remember how I got to work. I was so out of it that I, just, I wasn't excited at all. Now, flash forward to when I started doing stand-up, and people will tell me sometimes, like, oh, my God, that must be so hard. I go, listen, I, from the moment I started doing it, I loved doing it. So there was times where I was at the comedy store, for example, and in Los Angeles, and they'd said, you know, you have an 11.30 p.m. spot. And I would show up at 11.30 p.m., waiting to go up. The, at the time, my girlfriend, who now is my wife, she's at home, and I'm like, listen, babe, I got to go do this spot. I'll be back. And you know how it is with, like, you know, with your lady. Like, you could get in trouble if you got to – night if you, work, if you work at night, it takes away from the opportunity of, like, let's, say, let's go out for a romantic dinner because mm -hmm. you got to go work. Right. So I'd be like, baby, I'm going to go for a little bit. I'll be back. So I go there like for 1130 spot. I'm getting ready to go on. And then like uh, Andrew Dice Clay comes in and he's like, you know, he's going to do an hour. And we'll go, OK, now I'm going to be up at 1230. So right. I got to call my lady. Hey, listen, remember 1130. I'll be up. I'll be, I'll be up. I'll be back like around 1230 or something. About to go up at 1230. Eddie Griffin walks in, bumps me again. Right. And now I'm going to be up at 130. And the club closes at two, by the way. And now, by the time you hit the stage, it's five people and still five people audience. still there, and and my and my girlfriend's asleep, and the night's gone, and and I've blown I, like the whole night went to, went to crap. That said, I'm still excited to be on stage, and it's not work for me. It's like I I, I know I had to sit through that stuff. So if I didn't love what if I didn't love this, the moment Andrew Dice Clay walks in, I'm out. Right. But no, I love it. I'm sitting there. I'm watching. Like, who the hell is he? Yeah. Who does he think he is? <laughs> right. You know? Right. So that's my, that's my point is, again, you love, like, like if you look at a guy like uh, Bill Gates, they say that when he was coming up with Microsoft, that he and Steve Wozniak were 
I guess working in a garage like you know for hours and days and mm-hmm. just going and months and you know they just go 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 so that's exactly what you just said find what you love doing and so right. for me coming from a culture that does not encourage that it was it was me kind of rebelling against the culture like I I am like I am to the Iranian community what a punk rocker would be to uh, to like a, a, a you know a Western community or even like a rapper would be like you, you're basically saying mm-hmm. this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to do I'm going to create my own thing and you got and you're going to see it's going to happen right you know what I'm saying because you know well, yeah I've, maybe maybe what a rapper would have been back in in the in the late 80s or yeah, early 90s exactly but today damn yeah, everybody yeah, ever. would be a rapper you know <laughs> but but you know to your point about uh, being an Iranian uh, an uh, Iranian uh, American actor and and comedian, man, it's such a rarity, man. Like, were you ever afraid? Like, did you ever get to a point to where you was like, I don't, I, I don't know if this thing is going to work, or if this thing doesn't work, what the hell am I going to do? That you know, that never came into my mind, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you, I'll give you two reasons. One reason that the thing of like, I've always been somebody who felt like no matter what I do, things are going to work out. I think a reason for that is I owe that to my dad a lot. My father was a self-made millionaire. He was very wealthy. He he had a he had an electric company in Iran, mm-hmm. and so he'd made a lot of money. Uh, but he was also a very gregarious, outgoing, generous guy, and he spent his money like it was like he was like the Godfather, and you know, in that he took care of people. Right. Um, and I've had I've had people come up to me since he passed away telling me all kinds of stories. Like right. one guy, I was in Dubai doing a gig. This guy's like, "Are you Joe Brani's son?" I'm like, "Yeah," you know. And he goes, "He goes, your father's how we got out of Iran." I go, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "I was like newly married. I had no money. I needed an apartment, and your father owned these properties. And he told me just move in, pay me when you can. And he goes, eventually over the years, I was able to pay him. And he goes, when the revolution happened and we were escaping, he said." I had to sell that apartment to get the money to get out of the country. So he goes, your father basically let, let that happen for me. I've had several people come up and tell me things like mm-hmm. that. So what my father did for me, too, was that he, um, he instilled a confidence in me that no matter what I do, things are going to work out. Right. So going into this, I thought in the back of my mind, I didn't think that, oh, I'm going to be successful, I'm going to be in the TV or whatever. What I did think was, even if I have to go get a side job as a manager at a Starbucks or something, I'm going to do it and I'm going to make my life work. So that was one thing that I was had in the back of my mind was that no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. Right. Um, and then the second thing about will it succeed or not, I didn't think about my ethnicity at all when I came into it. I just was talking about my experiences. When I first started out, there were no other Iranian-American comedians. Uh, there was an, another guy in England. His name is Omid Jalili. He was doing it. I didn't really know him at the time. There was a handful of Arab-American comedians. Ahmed Ahmed a few other guys, but now there's a whole world of them. And I think part of that has to do with just, again, what I said, it takes time for immigrants to come to this country and then for their kids to realize that I can do this. I can, I can be a comedian. I don't have to be an engineer or a lawyer and all that stuff. And for me, I just knew, I, I was like, I'm going to do this. And I didn't think twice. I didn't think twice about failing. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come right back with Miles Gibrani. You're checking out Willie D's reality check. No, it's not. It's Willie D Live. You dig? Let's get back.
get back into the book, man. This this book you wrote. I, first of all, I think is an ingenious title. I'm not a terrorist, but I play one on TV. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's a hell of a title, man. Like, bam, it makes so much sense. And t- titles, book titles aren't the easiest thing to come up with. Dude, I just said that the other night. I go, writing a book is almost easier than coming up with a title. Because right. Because you're like, I got to get a title that's catchy. And what I did was, so I came up with that title because I was playing on those old aspirin commercials where the doctor would come out and say, I'm not a doctor, but I've played one, but I play one on TV. Okay. And it was like a right, soap right. opera actor. Yeah, okay, yeah. So I wanted to play on that. So what yeah. was interesting was, first of all, I realized that those commercials are from like the early 80s or something so there are a younger generation that doesn't even understand that that reference right but that said you still get the title because the title says i'm not a terrorist but i've played one on tv and so it was it was to be comedic it was to be you know to make it fun and and on the cover of the book i'm standing there wearing like a palestinian kafia which is like the turban looking thing i got a bomb in my one hand looks like a (laughs) wily coyote bomb and i got this look of confusion on my face and the whole The whole title in the in the front was the idea was to kind of make fun of like me Hollywood going, Hollywood and how yeah. did I end up here right? right and so what's interesting though is uh, the the publisher at first was a little worried about the word terrorist in the title they go right. I don't know if we can put it in the airports if it says terrorist and I'm like are you kidding me you go to the airport there's hundreds of books about like fighting ISIS how to stop ISIS I, exactly I go, you know Al Qaeda this Al Qaeda I go right. you know I go if somebody looks at this book and really thinks that it's some sort of t- pro-terrorist book. Right. They're, they're an idiot. I don't want them reading my book. I'm, I mean, I'm glad that they didn't stop you from uh, keeping that title the way it is, man. Yeah, I pushed. I pushed back. And that's the other thing is you got to stick to your creative vision, yeah. right? Uh, you've probably experienced that before where they want yeah. you to do something. Like, I'm telling you, I'd rather fail with my vision than, right. than, than, not, get, you know, than not get to try it. It's a reason why you're the creator and they're on the business side. It's, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's a reason. Yeah. And then you can, you, you know, I guess one could argue, say, well, yeah, they're on the business side because they know what you can and can't get away with. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Listen, but, I'm also not the kind of person that, that's so uh, closed-minded that I'm not willing to listen to stuff. Yeah. But I'm also, I, I am the CEO of my life, of myself. Right. So I ultimately, am the, I'm going to be the face of the book. Right. Regardless of how it happens. So, um so, yeah, you got to fight for that. And I tried. Listen, I, I listened to their advice at first, and I said, let me try some other titles. And I had all kinds of titles. Like, you know, it was like uh, Stand Up and Pat Downs, you know, the, the plight of a comedian traveling around the world. You know, like, you know. That, you know what? I, I want to talk about that because, <laughs> first of all, let me get back to the book real quick. The, the book has been described as, as funny. People have called it necessary. Um, a serious read. Yeah. I've, I've been reading a lot of reviews sure, about, yeah. about the book. Yeah. How do you describe it? I describe it as a, uh, as a, uh, my biography told in a funny way. And I also describe it as an immigrant story. Mm-hmm. And I think it is, I think the reason, not just my book, but other books and other stories and other, other stories of immigrants are very important these days is because as we see the backlash against immigrants right now mm-hmm. and these people that hate immigrants so much that Particularly really uh, Muslims yeah and, Muslims and, and you know just, a, from, let's just let's just say like what you see at Trump rallies sometimes with people Hispanics like, and, yeah. yeah so when you have these kinds of stories that humanize us that show I mean if you read the book you see I have the same desires as anybody else 
you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a sports star. You know, when I was, you know, even in Iran, I, I, was, I, was, I was a big fan of Muhammad Ali. I was a big fan of Zorro, right. Spider-Man. Those were my heroes as a kid in Iran. So when you read the book, you realize that we have so much more in common. And you also, um, I, I've been saying that it's also an indication of how immigrants love America. There's a reason why we came from another country mm-hmm. to America, because there's problems in our country. Right. So we love America. And, and a matter of fact, I was talking at some conference and I mentioned that. I go, you know, I just want people to know immigrants love America. And this lady, this older lady from Houston was actually at the conference. And she came up to me afterwards. She's like, well, we love you, too. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Well, well, how, how do, how, so how do you deal with the immigrants who come here and scare the hell out of everybody and want to bomb things? You know, how, how do you how does the, the Arab community uh, the Middle Eastern community, how, how does that region of the world, or the people even here in America, how do they deal with that? How do you cope with that mechanism? Well, you know, the fact that, first of all, the, the, if you looked at it statistically, um, I would say beyond 99% of people from the Middle East, whether they're Iranian or they're Arab or, they're, or even from Pakistan or Muslims, I would say way beyond nine, like less less than point oh 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 one percent are anyone who who have had any kind of um, ill will in terms of you know uh, I should say violent ill will towards America. If you look mm-hmm. at it, like it's just it's been the recent past now. Like there's been four or five incidents, whether it's the San Bernardino guy or I mean, for example, the guy that was the guy that did uh, the Orlando shootings. Yes, he was Afghan, and originally they tied him to ISIS, but it turns out he wasn't tied to ISIS. When you research a little bit more, he was this guy who was born in, in, uh, in uh, I think, New Jersey or New York, grew up in America, and he obviously was unstable mentally. He had problems with his wife. I think he had a kid. I don't know, but he had problems with his wife, and it turns out that like a lot of people that were at that nightclub said he used to frequent the gay nightclub so we see that he was struggling with his own homosexuality Mm -hmm. and there was something that triggered it and he goes in and shoots these people up but in going to shoot them up he happens to be afghan he happens to claim that he's got some sort of tie to isis when in reality there was no there's no there's no evidence that shows that he was in a training camp with isis that he was sent by isis he was just a guy who snapped and so when you look at that I think a lot of times when these things happen, a lot of people go, well, why, aren't the, why doesn't the Muslim community condemn these people? Why do they con-? Well, there's two things. First yeah. of all, a lot of people in the Muslim community do come out and condemn. Like there's a thing but called... But do they care. publicly condemn? They do. They do publicly. They just don't, yeah. get, they don't get the press. It's not the press. Because that's not a good story. CNN isn't press. covering it. Yeah. It's not a good story. So if you go to yeah. like CARE, which is uh, the Council uh, on American... Wait, K, C-A-I-R. Council on Amer- American Islamic Relations, CARE. Uh, uh, that's like one of them. There's a handful of them. They always come out right away. They condemn it. We condemn, we condemn. But then the other thing is, I've heard this argument, and there's some truth to this. When the dude goes up, when that uh, white dude went into the black church and and shot up all the black people, um, did the Christian community come out and condemn him? Right. And the fact is, no, because they don't associate with the guy. Excellent point. See, white people have the privilege of of doing something vile, doing something destructive, doing something that's hideous, 
and being able to stand on their individual merit when they do it. Their own, to be able to say, that's that person, he did that, that's on him. But when anybody else in America does something, they want to blame the whole community. Absolutely. And you know whose fault it is? First and foremost, it's the media's fault. Because like I like to say, and I know I'm right, the media is a PR agent for the government. And the government's job is to make white people think that all of their problems are because of somebody other than them. So when black people do something, and it's the same thing. I remember you, you, you did a, uh, I can't remember where you were, but uh, I saw you doing your, your stand-up routine somewhere. Yeah. And, and you, you was talking about how, you was talking about how every time when, when somebody bombs something, you'd be like, oh man, please don't let him be, uh, yeah. please don't let him be Miss Middle Eastern. Please don't let his name be Hassan or, yeah. you know, uh, Hussein, you know, yeah. like, that's how black people were. Black people are, many black people are. I used to be like that. Yeah. I used to be like, man, as soon as something, a man killed five people, killed a woman, and I, I man, please don't let them be black. Because yeah. I know they're going to blame all black people. Absolutely. So I'd be like, please don't let them be black. I used to think like that. Yeah. Nah, I don't give a shit. Yeah. I, you know what I'm saying? Because I understand, like, people are going to think how they want to think anyway. Yeah, yeah. If you want to believe, if you want to be that small-minded, you want to be that stupid to believe that all Muslims are this way or all blacks are this way or all Middle Easterners are this way or all you know, Hispanics are this way or all Asians are this way and all white people are this way, yeah. that's your stupid ass. Yeah. And I ain't got time to be worried about what your funky ass think. Yeah. I don't care, Yeah, you know? Well, you know, there's two things. First of all, I think somebody pointed this out. Like the percentage of Muslims in America is something like 3% or something. There's, there's not that many Muslims in America. So the odds are that a lot of Americans don't know a Muslim. And so... As either the population grows or people that are close-minded to Muslims run into meet Muslims. You know, like I, I have so many people come up to me. First of all, a lot of Iranians aren't even that religious. We don't know Middle Eastern Muslims. We, we got black Muslims. We got black Muslims, too, but I'm just saying, but I'm saying, saying percentage-wise yeah. in this country, it's a much lower percentage of Muslims than there are Christians or, right. or even Jews. Right. Right. So the point I'm trying to make is, once people interact with people from those cultures and they go, oh, wow, my neighbor was, is a Muslim, whether it's black or Iranian or whatever, and they invited me over for dinner and the food was amazing and they're right. so nice and their son's playing soccer and the daughter is, you know, an artist or whatever, da 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 da, da they, that starts to humanize us. That's right. So that's, that's right. number one. Number one is these people need to be exposed to something that's more in line with what reality is than what they see on TV. Because on TV, you're seeing the extraordinary situation. Right. You're seeing the guy who did blow himself up or you're seeing the guy who did go shoot people up. And how often is that happening? Not that often. So that's number one. The other thing is I think it falls on our shoulders, meaning like my shoulders or your shoulders as a creator. You create, you're telling your story. And a lot of times when you tell your story, you're going to present yourself and you're just presenting you. But right. people see you as presenting a black man in a different way. And it's a light that they had not even thought about. So when I, mm -hmm. I used to complain about, you know, I, I've, I don't think I complain as much, but, I, but I, I've always like pointed it out. But a lot of people do complain about 
the depiction of Muslims or Iranians or Arabs in movies. And I go, well, we can sit on the sidelines and complain till we're blue in the face. Mm-hmm. Or we can start writing scripts and we can start getting the community to fund these scripts and make a movie. I made my own movie, Jimmy Vestwood. Uh, uh, the reason I did it was it, it's a silly comedy. It's a comedy about an Iran, a guy who get, wins the green card lottery in, in Iran and he comes to America and he wants to be a cop. And he wants to save the day. And he ends up, it's a silly comedy. And he ends up, it's the first time I said that we have an American Is movie. Is it in production yet? Or you no, just... we, we did it. We made it. Oh, it's you called, did it yeah, Jimmy Vestwood, American Hero. Um, oh, yeah, I got to see that. Oh, yeah, it's a silly <laughs> slapstick. Yeah, it's like it. iTunes and all that yeah. stuff. It's like it, we, we did a limited release. We were in the Austin Film Festival. We won, okay. we won Best Comedy in the Austin Film Festival. Right. Um, but the point I'm trying to make about it was, it's the story of a, it's, a, it's an American made movie because we made it in LA. But the hero of the movie happens to be Iranian. Right. And if I had gone and pitched that to a studio and said it's a movie where this Iranian guy saves the day, they would have been like, get the hell out of here, man. Right. What are you talking about? That's right. But because I did it my way, I got to make the movie. I got people to invest in it. I, I got you know, friends and, fa- and family and community and a, and a crowdfunding page. And we made the movie and we distributed it ourselves. Even distributors. We couldn't find a big distributor to distribute the film. Even given my own fan base, I was like, listen, I got a big fan base. Like, let's do this. And a lot of them were like, I, we don't know what to do with it. So we had to distribute ourselves. And when we came out, we did a four-city release in May. The, the first weekend we were out, per screen average, we took fourth place nationwide behind Captain America. Huh. So, so if you look at Box Office Mojo, You'll see right after Captain America is our movie. And the reason is because we made it. We got the love of the community. The community came out and supported it. And, and th- that's what I'm saying is, is that we can sit on the sidelines and complain about the depiction of Iranians and Arabs and Muslims in the world. Right. Or we can get involved. And I choose right. to get involved, you know, and, and do it my way. So how bad is... Islamophobia, man, when you're traveling, when you're getting on those airplanes and they see your name, Mars Jabrani. Well, you know what's, it's funny because ever since I, I, I started in this business, I realized my full name is Maziar, but the fact is even Maz Jobrani or Maziar Jobrani, nobody yeah. knows what that is. It right. doesn't sound, it could, it could sound Italian, like Jobrani, right. you know, um, and I don't look like I have friends of mine who have that thick eyebrow. They mm-hmm. look like they're Muslim, you know, right. like and some of them grow out the beard. Because you look like you could be Puerto Rican. I could be Puerto uh, Rican. Hispanic or something. I could be know? anything. Right. Yeah. So when I travel, I don't get a lot of crap. But I've but I read. You so, also look like you could be white. I could be white. Yeah. Yeah. And Iranians actually are originally white. There's there's Iranians that are so light skinned. There's blonde, blue eyed Iranians. It's the yeah. weirdest thing because they'll come to my show and they'll walk up to me after the show and I'll be like, hey, thanks for coming out. And then they'll respond in per- they'll respond in Persian, and I'll be like, "You're Iranian," and they're like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Damn!" Like I get to tell you, like undercover. Yeah. But the point is, the <clears throat> there is a lot of Islamophobia going on because I read articles all the time. They've been they've been kicking people off of planes left and right. I read one. I read one where this one lady got into a situation where she was wearing like a hijab, the you know the head headgear, mm-hmm. and and the, and and the stewardess was pouring drinks for people, and she gave the lady her coke. And the lady said, can I get the can instead of just pouring it? I want the whole can. And the lady said, no, we don't give out cans. And then... That's a lie. Well, let me... Let me but, this is what, <laughs> but this is what happens. So she goes, we don't I give out cans. I get the can all the time. Yeah. So then, so, then, so then some guy got a beer. And so she gave the guy the beer and the can. Right. 
And then the lady was like, wait a minute, why would you give him the beer and not me? And then the lady said, well, we don't give out cans because they could be used as weapons. And, and, and this lady was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And then she started feeling that this lady was mm-hmm. accusing her of trying to weaponize this can. And then supposedly she got an argument with the stewardess and she was hoping that somebody would step in and be like, yo, calm down. Like, the la- you know, what the hell? But instead of that, she said, like, once the stewardess left, like, the guy sitting next to her, like, looked at her and was like, we don't trust you Muslims or something like that. Some, something along those lines. Right. Like, it got even worse. And I just, that just blows my mind. I'm like, why would you, why would people do that? But it's because they feel that they can. Exactly. People exactly. can get away with that shit. Right. You know? And what about the story when the lady, uh, when the whole family got kicked off the plane because they was talking about the safest place to sit? Yeah, that was the, the thing family. I read. Yeah, there was a, and, I, and the, yeah. it becomes material for me, but it all comes from truth. These yeah. family was walking down the aisle talking about the safest place to sit. Somehow the passenger overheard, him, overheard them and thought that they were like trying to plot something. And they kicked them off the plane. Yeah. And this was like, four, like, like five, six years ago. More recently, uh, an Iraqi kid, a kid uh, that was, that was uh, you know, an immigrant from Iraq, came to America, doing well, like getting involved. I think he was either in college or, or something. He was in some sort of like United Nations kind of a conference thing in Los Angeles. And he gets on an airplane on Southwest going from L.A. to San Francisco, one-hour flight. He's on the phone with his dad talking to him in Arabic. And he's and, and at some point it says inshallah, which means God willing. And again, some passengers overheard him, and they were like, "This is suspicious," and and they got him kicked off the plane. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, listen, dumbass. I was like, if someone really is trying to blow up the plane, he's not going to be on the phone talking to his you know handler in Arabic, being like, "Oh yeah, I'm here. I'm about to. Yeah, I'll be blowing it up in five minutes. Yeah. You know, uh, inshallah, God willing, this will go down." No, if the dude who's the dude who's going to blow up the plane is sitting there quietly. You know, with a Dodgers cap on, trying to pretend like he's fitting in. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that. So people freak out, but it's happening a lot more than you want it to. There's a lot of, listen, Islamophobia is on the rise. There was, there was, uh, there's been a lot of uh, um, vandalism towards mosques. There's been, there was, I think it was in New Jersey or something or, or New York where the, this one uh, imam and, and another guy were walking down the street and they got shot. I mean, people are, wow. people are, and the, and the stupidity of people, what you were talking about, the stupidity of people, people go after Indian Sikhs that have nothing to do with Islam. People are going after these Muslims that are, that, that imam was probably a positive guy, a good guy, probably helping out in the community, mm-hmm. and people are going to shooting him, thinking like, oh, this is a statement. Well, you're taking out the good guys, you dumbass. Yeah, I, I know what it's like with, with the plane. I know what it's like to be, on, be the asshole guy on the plane. And surrounded by Middle Easterners, because I used to live in the Middle East. Well, I used to live in uh, Eurasia, so you know, in Azerbaijan. Yeah. And so, you know, when I get on the plane, you know that, and, and these international flights. I mean, you're talking about ten hours to get to Europe. So I'm on the plane, and like, man, the first six hours, even as tired as I am, I can't sleep. Cause I'm watching all the Muslims. <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking. At, I'm, looking I'm watching. I'm saying to myself, if something go down, this motherfucker gonna blow up in mid air. They got to kill me. Cause I ain't. I'm not finna just be taken hostage. You are funny. But like, I was like watching everybody. Like any little subtle move, anybody yeah. got up to go to the bathroom. Yeah. I'm thinking all my moves. And they're watching <laughs> you. They're like, this black guy's up to something, man. Why is a black guy in your razor? Why is he not Azerbaijan? I was like looking, man. I'm like, man, any kind of little subtle move, man. I'm like, I'm watching, man. I'm like, I'm making sure that 
You know, normally people want window seats. I want an aisle seat. You're ready to go. I need to be in action. I already thought about how I'm going to do all of this stuff, man. But, you know, having said that, man, it's, 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 it's sad that we live in that type of world, man, where, you know, people can uh, put these images out and, and make people fear other people the way we do. Well, you got to realize the odds of something like that happening are so small. And the problem is that's why terrorism works, because terrorism is supposed to strike terror into your heart. Right. So one guy can go in and do something crazy, and then now it's in the back of your mind that every time I go on an airplane, someone's going to do something. Exactly. But the odds of that happening, I mean, if you look at the statistics, like people have broken it down, you're more likely to die from being struck by lightning or you're more likely to die from like getting a car accidents or like you should you should look at cars and pee your pants because those are the biggest weapons in the world so those should be freaking you out but they don't because that's what we need right we gotta we gotta travel and we don't think about it and you you get lulled into this Uh, thing that's what we need hey man let's let's continue this conversation when we go back we're gonna take a quick break okay So people don't fear the things that they need. They figure out a convenient way to accept that. Absolutely. Listen, even if it is dangerous. Cars, cars are dangerous. Uh, McDonald's. You know how many people are dying from people, heart disease? Because people of, love it. And people they love it. it. They want it. Yeah, but that's yeah. really like that's a big McDonald's is probably a bigger killer than Osama bin Laden ever was. Ronald McDonald right. killed more people than Osama bin Laden. Huh. I'm getting I'm going on record. Y'all heard it right here, right here. On Willie D Live, <laughs> Ronald McDonald, <laughs> the guy you love, has killed more people <laughs> than who? Osama bin Laden Osama ever did. Osama bin Laden has yeah. ever done yeah. did. Wow. And, the, and and the fact is so so that's what I'm trying to get at is because you got in your head when you're in this place. I it's funny you said that that you were in a, on a plane from Azerbaijan to 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 Europe and you're looking around at all these people that, that kind right. of fit. Well, actually, actually, I was from 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 United States to to Europe and then from uh, either either Germany or London to Azerbaijan. Okay, so but then you see all these Muslim-looking people and it's freaking yeah. you out. And well, I once actually, I got on the other side of the water, I wasn't afraid because I know they don't blow each other up. <laughs> you know, they don't just blow each other up. They don't blow up planes that's headed to Azerbaijan. That's funny. You know what I'm saying? So I was always, well, I got a little bit more relaxed once I was headed to Azerbaijan. Well, you know, that's the thing. Is like I was saying, like I see I talk about it in my book. I go, if you go in, at the airport in Dubai and you start walking around, there's all these dudes in what's called the Dishtasha, which is the gear like the, that long robe they wear there's dudes wearing kind of turbany looking things there's dudes with long beards there's dudes that look like isis and al-qaeda and there's thousands of those dudes walking around that airport and you're freaking out because you're like oh my god that's the guy that's the guy that's the guy but if you talk to the guy he would be like yeah i'm an accountant and you'd in, be like what in, do you in dubai in dubai right. like you know yeah I've, I've been there a number of times too what about um Oh, you had a point you wanted to No, the point I'm trying to make is that these people that fit this profile that we think is something are just regular people living their lives. It just so happens that they dress that way. It's Again, you know, being a black man, you understand. Like, if you, if you dressed in, like, you know, uh, uh, a hoodie and you're walking around and someone, like, grabs their purse, you're like, I don't want your purse. Listen, man. In America, you don't need to have a hoodie on and be a black man. You can have a three-piece suit on with $2,000 shoes and a $4,000 briefcase. And the bummiest-looking white woman will 
clutch her purse. That's it, and that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so in that situation of the plane, you were the white, you were the white woman who was freaking out because of yeah. what you've seen in film and television, right. and all this stuff. And I think it takes a lot of uh, us for us to go to step. And this is something like, for example, again, you don't see the Trump rally. They don't sit back and step back. Like right now, they have really sold this idea that the biggest threat to Americans, one of the biggest threats, is ISIS and it's Muslim and Islamic fundamentalism, all this stuff. Every time they bring that up, I go, you know what the biggest threats to Americans are? Americans. Ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding, ding. Americans, you're right. You're and right. how many, listen, they talk about like, oh, there was a Muslim attack in San Bernardino. There was a Muslim attack here. I go, how many American white attacks have there been where some dude just walks into his office and just shoots people up, walks into another space, shoots people Can't up, count. walks into, and they, and they don't sit there and go, oh my God, we need to start banning white people right. from our own country. Right, or banning, or banning Christians. Or how about like the whole gun, yeah. gun thing? I really feel that, this, that there is a debate around the gun issue that, that people aren't willing to have. And somebody pointed out, like, I've heard, I've heard a lot of people say, well, we can't stop the gun violence because if we take the guns, then all the bad people will keep the guns and good people won't. And you look at a place like Australia. Australia had a mass shooting. I forget. It was like 10, 15 years ago. They had a mass shooting. And that was when it finally, in Australia, they, they hit the ceiling. They go, that's it. We're not going to do this anymore. But see, the only thing about that is this. To me, the police are the most dangerous gang in America. It's not even the game bangers because at the end of the day, the police control the game bangers. Anytime, look, man, the game bangers. I remember, you know, when anytime the game bangers try to calm down and have a truce and just say we're we gonna chill, the police come in and disrupt it. Right. You know, they like the game banging. It's action for them. Sure. They like the drug dealing. It's action for them. Right. You know, they are the biggest problem. I do not want to, them to be the only people to have guns in America. I hear you on that. And that, that's why I'm saying the, the thing about the NRA is done a good job of selling this thing of gun control where they go, if we do any kind of gun control, then it means all guns will be gone. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I understand the idea of self-defense. I understand the idea of having a pistol in your house to defend yourself from somebody or something or whatever mm -hmm. the situation is. What I'm talking about is I feel that when they point the issue and they go, it's Muslims are coming to get us. They don't talk about, well, what about all these other unstable people that are easily buying semi-automatic AR-15s, all this other crazy stuff, and there's no red flag going up. The guy who right. shot up Aurora, the, the, the theater in Aurora, Colorado, he uh, had bought 3,000 rounds of ammunition online that was delivered to his house, mm -hmm. and not a red flag went up. Of like, exactly. Why does somebody need 3,000 rounds of ammunition? Not only did a red flag not go up, but there was no sweeping legislation that took place in the wake of the mass murder either. Dude. You know, they, they didn't say, okay, we need to change this law. We need to turn, make this law. We need to do this. We need to do this. We it need to do that. Blows they my only mind. do that yeah. when people of color commit crimes. Yeah. They only do that when people of color commit crimes. But also, I would say the NRA, I studied the NRA a little bit in, in, uh, in college, and it's amazing. If they, they talk about how it used to be a hunting uh, uh, organization, it was, mm -hmm. they were about outdoors and hun hunters. And in the 70s, there was a big change in the leadership, and they started pushing this gun rights, gun rights, gun rights. And they have, they've done so well at convincing people that any kind of gun, right, gun, gun control means that they're, they're going to take away your guns. And so you've seen it. I mean, it's like people go nuts. Every, like when Barack Obama was 
became president, the gun sales went up. People yeah. started buying guns and getting ready for that war. It's still going up. Yeah. And so what's crazy yeah. is, what I'm trying to say is that it's easy how they, they take the, they, they distract people and they go, no, no, the biggest threat is not the easy access to guns where unstable people are getting hands on guns and going out and shooting people. When Newtown happened, when, they, when that guy went into that school and shot up 20-something kids, I was like, this is ridiculous. I go, there's no way we're not going to change legislation. And it didn't change. Uh, you know, uh, Barack Obama comes out and says, how about if you're on the no-fly list, then you shouldn't be able to buy guns. No fly, no buy. And I saw this one. Actually, it was funny. They were doing the, it was the sit-in. I forget, the, the older black congressman, he did the sit-in for the, for, it was after Aurora. It was recent. They did a sit-in in Congress where they were trying to get the Democrats, were trying to get the Republicans to do some something with gun legislation. Talking about John Lewis? Uh, maybe that's who it was. Mm-hmm. He led a thing, and they were, they were doing a sit-in, and then they brought this Republican congressman on, mm-hmm. and they were interviewing him. And they go, why are you so opposed to doing some gun control? Why, why are you opposed to no-fly, no-buy? They go, that seems pretty straightforward. If, you're, if the government considers you a possible threat to fly, meaning you're a terrorist, you're no fly, you can't fly, then why shouldn't that also be no buy? Like why, why? and this guy goes, this, this again, white congressman, he's like, well, you know, the chances are, there's, there's a chance that if your name accidentally ends up on the no fly list, <laughs> then it's hard to get your name off and now you can't buy. And I, I was watching, I go, it's amazing how concerned white people become about the no-fly list when it's going to affect white people's chances of buying guns, whereas I have Arab friends that have been telling me forever that their name ended up on this no-fly list because it was similar to some guy's name who was a terrorist, but nobody cared about fixing the no-fly list and getting these innocent Arab names off of the no-fly list. Mm-hmm. So suddenly they, they're concerned about it. So the point I'm trying to make is that it's all... Uh, it's it's you know it's a smokescreen you know in that in that they're saying be afraid of Muslims but they're not saying let's look at the uh, let's look at the real issue here the real issue is that there's a lot more violence being done by people that have easy access to these guns and and again I'm not I don't I'm not I'm not trying to take everyone's guns away I'm just trying to say there's certain just common common sense legislation that we could implement but it's a lot easier to go uh uh-uh, uh be afraid of that guy with the beard with the hairy right. eyebrows and it gets in your head and now they're at these rallies and going like get rid of the muslims no muslim immigrants allowed no immig-. you know the whole thing of like it's the game mentality really because some people they would never do that by themselves but because they seeing other people doing it and they like it they're going like <sighs> you know it's just like a high for them they're going out to the rallies and, and they're doing it too it's like a well, yeah, that's why Do- i mean donald trump is 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 out there spewing hatred and that and it's easy mm-hmm. there was this great New York Times uh, video that someone put together at the rallies, and it was it was the guy uh, was sitting there with, with different videos at the rallies and listening to what people are saying. And there was a black guy there were who was at the rally who I guess must have been a protester. They're pulling him away, mm-hmm. and the hatred that was coming from the mouths of these people. They're like, "Get him out of here!" Like, "Get N word!" You know, like, "Get that guy!" You know, "Get the." I'm like, "Oh my God!" Like, how? How do these people get away with this? And they do. And you see the hatred they have for a black man or for a Mexican man or for a Muslim man or, or a woman. I don't care. But, but you know where they come from? I'm going to tell you what, where all hatred comes from. 
This is where it comes from. It comes from hurt. The people who hate are hurting. Yeah, absolutely. See, and it's hard. A lot of times you can't see it because most of the time you see them. See, this is like a defense mechanism. I hate. That's my defense mechanism. Yeah. You know, I, I'm bad. I'm tough. I'm angry. You know, so nobody's going to mess with me because I'm, you know, I'm looking mean and I'm mean and I'm bad. You know, yeah. that, that's a defense mechanism because deep down inside they're hurting. I don't know. Maybe they're hurting from their childhood. Yeah. Maybe they're hurting from a relationship that went bad. But here's the thing about the hate. The hatred. <clears throat> All of this stuff to me, people that just hate people indiscriminately, like, okay, you do something to me on a personal level. You as an individual do something to me on a personal level. I hate your ass. You know, yeah. I hate you. Yeah. You did that to me. I hate you. Okay. Now. The problem that I have with the people who say I hate all white people or who I hate all black people, I hate all Muslims, I hate all Hispanics. Here's the problem I have with them. Most of the convictions that we have in our lives, they come from uh, the 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 our childhood yep. and, and and our upbringing mm-hmm. it comes from people uh if we had let's say if we were abused more than likely we were abused by somebody that looks like us if we were had our heart broken it was probably somebody that looked like us yeah you know if if we were chased home from school it was probably somebody that looked like us uh got our home broken into it's probably somebody that looked like us because these are the people in close, close proximity to us. Yeah. But we somehow conveniently give the people who give us our strongest convictions that, that we give them a pass. Yeah. You know why we give them a pass? Because in our minds, we need them. We got to have them. We can't say we hate all. And I can't say I hate all black people because my mama was abused me and my, my mama was an alcoholic or my first girlfriend cheated on me. You know, my first black girlfriend, she cheated on me. So I hate all black women. I can't do that. Yeah. That's too fucking much like right. Yeah. So I got to say, I hate you, you, you. I hate all the rest of y'all. I hate y'all, even though y'all ain't really personally did anything to me. I hate, yeah. I hate all, of, all of y'all. Yeah. See, my thing is that if you're going to keep it real and you're going to be a racist, you're going to be hate, hateful, hate everybody. Yeah. Like, hate, if your mama abused you and you white, hate all white people. Yeah. If your girlfriend cheated on you and you black and you hated her ass, hate all black people. Yeah, be a racist. You know, yeah. Be a fucking racist through and through. Yeah. Hate everybody. Commit to it. Be, be committed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, be fucking committed. See, I... I and with all of the shit that, that white people did in this country to, 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 to black people, and even uh, that uh, some white people today continue to do. Yeah. You know, I still judge people by the content of their character. I know that there are white people out there who are on the front lines and actually making more sacrifices for 
the progress of black people and the advancement of black people than some black people are. It's actually some black people out there that are detrimental to the black community that need to be extinguished. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, the, that's a fact. Yeah. So why would I love this person that's a detriment, detriment to my community? Yeah. And hate the person that's actually out there boycotting, protesting, mm-hmm. giving of themselves to the cause, to the plight yeah. of the advancement of black people. Why would I do that? That don't even fucking make sense. Yeah. See, it's, it's a sickness in somebody's head to think otherwise. Yeah. But, and, and listen, what you're saying is right, and, and, and I think you're right. It comes from, it comes from the, that pain, and that's why... You know, I've been reading a lot about my. I have I have an eight year old boy, five year old girl. So I've been reading a lot about kids and bringing kids up. And one of the most important things you can do for your kids is to give them love and give them confidence, mm-hmm. love and confidence, love and confidence, because that's that person who will grow up hopefully, and see through some of that bullshit, and sit there and go, you know what? I'm going to be the white guy who's going to fight for the black guy. I'm going to be the Middle Eastern kid who's going to stand up for whoever and whatever. Uh, because I learned that I got love as a kid. I'm not gonna. I, I didn't. I, I didn't get that hatred. If you if you neglect your kids and they 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 long for your love, but you don't give them that love, then like you said, in the future they're gonna go up and they're gonna be they're gonna be taking out their pain on everyone around them. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. You're absolutely right. That's so important that the 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 the, the, the that it comes from a place of of pain. That a lot of bullies are the most insecure people in the room. Mm-hmm. But they bully you because they want to bring you down to how they feel. Right. Right? As opposed to bringing you up. So when I see a guy like Trump, he's going after everybody. He's getting women. He's getting black people. He's getting Mexicans. He's making, he made fun of that handicapped dude. He's making fun of everybody. And I'm sitting there going like, this guy had a void in his life. Yes, he was rich, but his father, whatever it was, somewhere along the line, he had a void, and he is not, he's so quick to jump back. A couple of times they've pointed out, uh, different politicians, different people have pointed out, like he's so quick to, if you insult him, he comes back so fast. He, that's why he's so crazy on Twitter. He's coming back fast, and he goes after everybody. He got in a Twitter fight with Rosie O'Donnell, with Jon Stewart, with all these people, and, and people have pointed out, like, if you're going to be the president of a country, you can't, you can't be that rash in your reactions you got to be stately you got to step back diplomatically think about it you know what i'm saying take mm-hmm. like barack obama recently had the president of the philippines <clears throat> called barack obama jackass or something like that i don't know if you've been hearing about this guy in the no. philippines the guy is nuts he like he started this whole campaign where he said that we're going to kill drug dealers or anyone related to drugs so he's been having cops go around killing drug dealers and then individuals have been going out as vigilantes killing drug dealers and this dude is Duterte is his name he's nuts he'll do speeches and he's like you know you know you can't mess with I me I heard about that he's been paying people to to kill drug dealers right? yeah he's like he's a, yeah. he's a nutty dude yeah and he got on he, he in some speech he like dissed Barack Obama or something and then every all the press was like ooh so then they went to Barack Obama like how do you feel about that and he's like 
well, you know, some leaders say what they got to say. And, that, <laughs> you know, he's like, you know, you know, backstage, he's like, that dude is out of his mind. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But on. No, backstage, he's about to kick his ass. I'll kick his ass, ass yeah. Ass, yeah. Bass, bitch ass. But you know, in let, the front of the camera, you know, he's a leader. He'll kick his ass in the back alley somewhere. I'll of course. Beat his head in. But in front of the cameras, he's a leader <laughs> right. because he comes from a place of confidence. Right. Right. And that's what we got to do, I think. You're right. I think people that are racist, I think people that have hatred, a lot of it comes from. Uh, um, hurt and insecurity and having to bring people down. So, right. you know, love I, your kids. Man, I wanted to uh, let everybody know about this uh, board that you sit on. You sit on the Persian American Cancer Institute. Uh, and you also uh, is a representative for International Society for Children with Cancer. How'd you get involved with that? You know, being one of the only Iranian-American com- comedians, what happened was every time there was some kind of organization and they needed a host or whatever, they would come to me. Yeah. So both of these organizations did that. And the Persian-American Cancer Institute is an institute that encourages uh, Iranians to sign up for the bone marrow registry. Because mm-hmm. if somebody gets cancer and they need a match for a bone marrow uh, transplant, uh, it doesn't, it's not necessarily the fact that, that they will find that match within their own race, but the odds are better if you have somebody who's got a lot more in common with you that that person will match with you. So it's a very easy thing to do. And you don't have to be, I mean, everybody, whether you're black or, or white or whatever, should look up the uh, bethematch.org, which is the bone marrow registry in America. They send you this, this Q-tip. You take it. You swab your inside of your mouth. You put it in the envelope. You mail it out. They hold on to your DNA. They have your, you know, they, they, that helps them match you with somebody else. And it could happen where a year or so, five years, ten years, you never know. They'll call you up and say, hey, there's a, there's a 20-year-old kid that needs your, you know, bone marrow. Uh, uh, can you come in? And you go in and supposedly the procedure is very simple. They just get your blood out. It takes a few hours. They give it to the guy. And you go home, you know, with a donut or whatever. You know, right. you know it's, it's an easy thing to right. save nice. a life. So Paki, Persian American Cancer Institute, does that. And ISCC is another organization. They, do, um, they, they raise money and they send it to a, uh, there's a cancer hospital in Iran with all these kids with cancer. So they send it to them. So for me, it's like those are no-brainers. It's like why wouldn't I get involved with these types of organizations? And, and whatever that is for you, for whoever it is that's listening to this right now, if you've been thinking about getting involved with homeless people or, or with cancer or with whatever it is, you know, there's a million people out there that need your help. They have, they have it worse than you. No matter where you are, there's somebody out there that has it worse than you. Right. So if you can find that, it feels good, man. You feel good. You help out. You have people with those issues thanking you. And it just, it, you know, you go, okay, I'm doing the right thing. Right. And, and you, you're doing a hell of a job, man. And I appreciate you for coming on, man. How can the people get in touch with you? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter. It's at Maz Jobrani, which is M-A-Z-J-O-B-R-A-N-I. Um, uh, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's all at Maz Jobrani. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel that I'm putting together more and more of. There's all my stand-up clips there. It's just YouTube slash Maz Jobrani. So ton of stand-up there. I've been putting sketches together. So people, there's no way you can avoid me. Just find right. me, and, I, and I'm touring all the time. And we don't want to avoid you, man, because you're funny as oh, hell. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks, Will. Ladies and gentlemen, Mars Jabrani, man, thank you for coming on the show, man. W- one of the good people out there, y'all, especially in Hollywood, man. You know Hollywood is weird as hell. This is one of the good guys, y'all. Well, 
It's been a pleasure, it's been a thrill to let you know how I feel. Some may grit and pitch a fit, but the watch on my wrist say that's all you're going to get. Look here, y'all. Until next time, y'all be good. If you can't be good, be great. No more talk.